and welcome to episode 152 of Real Life Ghost Stories. To kick things off this week, I need to thank some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Nicola Jones, Jeremy James, Kaylin Bonnell, Spunky and Son, Chrissy Ryan, Natasha Pearson, Elizabeth, Joe Travers, Cheryl Bazaki, Carolyn Blake, Angela Linneman, Lucy Tuck, Chloe, Michelle Phillips, Darling Rosie, Pappenfuss Charlie, Daniela, Julie Bach, Veronica Ackerman and Jamie. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day and I apologise from the depths of my soul if I pronounced your name incorrectly. And our film review this week, our film review is One B Or. One B Or was released in 2019. It has 5.8 out of 10 on IMDb and 88% on Rotten Tomatoes. New to Los Angeles, a woman moves into a seemingly perfect apartment complex and soon finds out that there are consequences for breaking the rules. You need to brace yourself for spoiler alerts with this one. I'm going to go through my likes, I'm going to go through my dislikes, I'm going to give it a mark out of five, and I can tell you now, it's not going to be good. I watched this film a good while ago now, it was like a month ago now, and I'm still really angry about it. So my likes, there are very few. But this film was in a list of like top 50 horror movies on Amazon Prime and the description was right up my street. I really enjoy a cult story and when I say enjoy I mean I'm fascinated by cults, I'm fascinated by cult psychology, I think it's a really interesting facet of society that these cults happen, that they exist and I thought oh this film looks like it's going to be really good but actually I found very little to like in this movie. I appreciated the concept a lot. So what you have is a horror movie where society itself is the monster and I really like it when films do that. Like I really like when films try and reflect back the bad bits of society back at us and that's the horror trope rather than it being specifically like a monster or something supernatural. I like films where the monster is us. And we have our protagonist, Sarah, who escapes to LA to start anew. And she is a really super talented designer. But immediately she's faced with like low paying jobs and a housing market that is like Hunger Games competitive. Impossible. And I have to say like that in itself is a true horror scenario. And I think everybody can get on board with that, like being really talented at something, but not being able to get a job in that field. Or if you do get a job, it's an unpaid internship. And then the housing market being so outrageous that you can barely afford to live. And you know what? That's That in itself is and should be a horror movie trope going forward. The horror of living in 2022. And she ends up finding this apartment in a complex that is essentially too good to be true. And if I've learned anything from watching horror movies over the years, it is that if it seems too good to be true, it's definitely too good to be true. And you're going to be violently mutilated and murdered at some point in the film. This brings me to my dislikes. So that's really where my likes end. My dislikes, the acting in this movie was really, really poor. Sarah, the protagonist, gave me a sum total of nothing. I didn't root for her. And I got to the point where I really didn't care about her outcome. Like I really didn't care what happened to her. And you realise pretty quickly that the house that she's moved into 
is some sort of cult. The complex acts as some sort of cult where they all have these basic principles of like togetherness, love, etc. But but obviously it becomes quite sinister. And while it covered all of the basic psychological elements of a cult, it was really poorly done. So all of the elements were thrown together, thrown in, but none of them were really explored in any sort of meaningful way. They gave a reason for the cult. Uh, Like I said, it was all about like society being together and being happy and positive, which kind of gives quite Jonestown vibes. But it was way too ambiguous to be interesting. And ultimately, when the protagonist realises that it's some sort of cult, her initiation, her depersonalization, essentially becomes torture porn. And I'm not interested in watching torture porn. I don't have any desire to see that level of violence inflicted on somebody. Like, she was being converted to a cult. She wasn't a prisoner of war, you know? And not all cults use that level of violence in order to initiate somebody into the cult or to depersonalize them. Like, it just felt like none of it was really very well thought out. I thought the ending was weak. I thought the characterization of pretty much all the characters was weak. And I don't really know how it ended up on that list of like 50 best horror films to watch on Amazon Prime. And I do understand that films are subjective and film reviews are subjective. But I think at this point, the proprietors of Rotten Tomatoes need to be arrested and put on trial. Because that that film is not an 88% film. It's not, I'm sorry. And for me, it was... A one star movie. I would not recommend it. And if you are going to watch it. If you are going to subject yourself to the torture of watching it. Please look up. Does the dog die of this movie. Because there is animals being harmed. And the the torture that she is subjected to. Is pretty grim. Which brings us to our story this week. I can't believe I actually managed to keep that film review short and sweet. Maybe I just need to pick films that annoy me all the time because then I just don't want to talk about them. So let's get into our story this week. It is nothing to do with cults. It is nothing to do with the movie. It is something that I am fascinated with and I hope that you will be too. So let's get into it. Regardless of who you are and what you believe in, whether you're in Australia or Finland, Colombia or Indonesia, whether you're a firm believer or an ardent sceptic, we all have something in common. Wherever we are in the world, we'll have folk stories. Stories that have been passed down for generations. Some only exist in our spoken word, never written down, and others have been immortalised in books and poems. These stories are sometimes outrageous little tales of elaborate characters and the calamity that befalls them. Some are stories of darkness that keep small children from wandering off alone. And others are stories that have a moral message, a metaphorical moral compass to guide us in our daily lives. Whether those stories are believable or not is another question entirely. For the most part, we accept that they are simply stories and nothing more. But there are always those folkloric tales that carry that magical thread, that somehow seems plausible. And one day, you find someone's experiences and wonder if there are more to these folk tales than we could possibly imagine. The children of the islands grew up hearing the stories about the ones in the darkness. While their mothers and grandmothers would work, 
the children would sit at their feet and listen to stories and tales from long ago. Tales that had traversed the passing of time and nestled unchanged in the ears of the little ones. The stories were not presented as fairy tales or moral metaphors. They were simply things that had happened. Things that explained the sounds that would be heard on the island when the moon was dark. There was no doubt in anyone's mind. The unexplained things that lived on the island were real. They just weren't human. These stories were passed on both as a gift and a responsibility. The islanders knew that hearing these stories meant that they had a responsibility to pass them on when the time was right. There was no arrogance in the receipt of these stories. They weren't designed to give someone superior knowledge to others. They were there to be passed on so that people could be aware of the things unseen and so that when the moon was dark, the people could keep safe. They were the ancient beings mentioned in the creation chants of Hawaii. Once human, they were elite warriors that existed on the islands to serve a very particular purpose. The night marchers appear in the last four moon phases of the Hawaiian lunar calendar as the moon is going dark. Most commonly, they appear in a chiefly procession and they march from mountain to ocean and stop at sacred sites on the way. Often people will see them in the distance, the glow of torches in procession descending the mountain, covering great distances in impossible times. They cross rivers and boulders as though they aren't even there. Some simply report the sounds, because even if you don't see the torches, like pinpricks in the distance, you will hear them the roar of the conch shell and the beating of drums and sometimes the sound of a flute and the stomping of multiple feet. There are of course those who don't heed the warnings. They may see the torches and think that there is something else afoot. They may hear the rhythmic drums like a heartbeat from the mountains and ignore it. And those who come face to face with the night marchers whether by accident or through ignorance are in grave danger. But there are things that you can do to keep yourself alive should you encounter the phantom chiefly procession. You should strip naked, lie face down with your hands clasped behind your head and no matter what, do not look. If you look, you will be killed. Night marchers in life were tasked with protecting chiefs who were so sacred that no one could look at them. In their presence, no one could be clothed. If the chief was out at daytime and the sun cast their shadow on your body, you would be killed. In order to avoid this, the sacred chiefs moved at nighttime, flanked by their night marchers, and they echo this in death. When they were alive, there would be a procession at least once a month. And so they have continued. The jobs were generational. They are still protecting their chief in death. And when the moon is right, they march among the living. As the world has moved on from these ancient practices, cities and towns have grown up, but not taken the route of the night marchers into consideration. 
so many buildings are now directly in the path of the night marchers. Their pathways are ancient and sacred, and they do not change route for the development of buildings. You cannot stop them, and the only way to keep people safe is to ensure the buildings are clear on the night that they march. This may sound like an exaggeration that is designed to preserve the veracity of the legend, but there are genuine modern examples of modern life being violently impacted by the night marchers. In recent years, the University of Hawaii had to put out a memo to stop people from parking their cars in a certain area of the car park on nights of the night marchers. They had not taken the night marchers' route into consideration, and on the nights that they moved, people would return to the car park and their cars would be turned over or the windows smashed, and no one could figure out why it was happening. It was assumed to be mindless vandalism, but they could never quite catch the culprits until they realised that the destruction followed a distinctive pattern. It would only happen at a certain moon stage and only cars in a certain area of the car park were damaged. It wasn't human intervention. The car park had been built in the path of the night marchers. In the early 1990s, a new Kmart was opened on one of the islands and it had a successful opening day. The next day, staff returned bright and early to open the store and what greeted them defied logic and explanation. The entire store had been ransacked, but in a way that just didn't make sense. It was as though a giant hand had reached in and swept everything out of the way. Everything that had been in the store, shelves, counters, stock, produce, had all been swept away to one side and was now pushed against the right-hand wall of the building. The staff were obviously in shock, but what they did not realise was that across the empty car park, in a hardware store, the workers were having the same experience. It was like something, some great force or energy, had moved through the car park and swept everything out of its way. On the most western point of the island of Oahu, on the place where the land meets the sea, is a place of sacred tradition. It is the place where souls leap into the next world and the home of the end of a night marcher trail. Lupaka was working late. He was a native storyteller on the island and working late came with the territory. If people wanted to hear a ghost story, they wanted to hear them in the dark where a rustle in the distance suddenly became potentially threatening and the black of the night created shadows. But it was later than usual and the group had showed up late and he was feeling flustered and behind schedule. When the tour eventually got underway and the stories were flowing, Lopaka decided that the time was nigh to ensure that the tour group really experienced the fear that the local stories could produce. They were standing in an empty gravel car park. The ridge of a small hill was in front of them, in the distance, and between them and the hill was head-height long grass that swayed and rustled in the breeze. Behind them they could hear the sea lapping at the shore, at the exact spot where the souls leap into the other world. Lepaka told them to stand in a line and close their eyes. 
He asked them to feel the breeze around them, to concentrate on the sounds of the sea and the rustle of the tall grass. Think of the night marchers, he said. Imagine their journey, beginning deep in the mountains, meandering through the island towards the sea behind you. Hear their drums and the trumpet of the conch shells and try to picture in your mind where they would emerge from the long grass, where they would appear. He asked the group to point to where they believed the night marchers would emerge from the long grass without opening their eyes. Fingers pointed in all direction, with no rhyme or reason. Lepaka asked them to open their eyes, and as the group realised that they were pointing every which way, they began to emit relieved giggles until a voice broke through the laughs and the murmurs. Baby, where are you going? A mother was asking her child as he stepped out of the group and stood in an opening in the tall grass. He stood looking into the tall grass with his tiny body silhouetted against the darkness. They come from here, he said, not turning around to face the group. Lopaka watched with interest as this little boy continued to stare into the darkness of the grass. The boy's father whipped out his camera and began taking pictures of the boy standing in the darkness, peering into the grass. He immediately reviewed the pictures and was startled by something strange in the first one that he looked at. The boy seemed to be surrounded by brightly glowing orbs in the pictures. The picture was passed around the group and everyone looked at the picture and then at the place that the picture depicted. There didn't seem to be anything that would cause the orbs to show up in that way, but perhaps it was just the flash catching small insects that they couldn't see or hear, or even dust or seed particles being thrown up by the long grass. Weird, but not inexplicable. Until they scrolled to the next picture, where the grass looked wrong. It looked off. Bits of it seemed longer, taller and more defined. And the sound of gasps began to emerge as the group realised what the picture was depicting. In the grass, there were the clearly defined silhouettes of men. Men with feathered capes and feathered helmets holding spears, standing in the grass, facing the little boy in the foreground of the picture. There were 40 people in that tour group and 40 people saw those pictures. When the last person looked at the picture, the camera began to beep and flash and the word delete appeared on the screen. The pictures disappeared and Lepaka in particular was annoyed. He sighed and turned to the group and said, well, there goes our proof. As he finished his sentence, the air changed. The tall grass bent and swayed as a hot gust of wind burst from the ridge through the tall grass and blustered through the group. The wind puffed out almost as soon as it started, but they were left with something else. The smell of something rotting, something dead, the sharp, heavy aroma of decay. The group were silent, shocked at what was happening around them, unsure whether to laugh at the strange coincidence or to run. But then they heard it. The quiet, rhythmic beat of the drums in the distance, but unmistakably getting closer. 
The thing about panic is that not everyone panics in the same way. Everyone in the group panicked at the same time. And Lepaka found himself back at the tour bus, but quickly realised that the group had not had the same thought process. They had taken off towards the sea, which was exactly the pathway that the night marchers were due to take. Back he ran, with the drums beating in the distance and herded 40 people back onto the bus. While the panting and dishevelled people settled into their seats, the little boy looked up at Lepaka. Thank you for coming back for us. The men in the funny hats. They asked me your name, but I told them that I did not know it. Lopaka froze and a cold chill swept through his veins. A month previously, he had been working in a graveyard and had watched as the trees and the tall grass surrounding the graveyard bent and swayed as though being blasted by a gust of wind. He could see or hear nothing until he suddenly felt a blast of hot air from the mountainside and a smell of rotting flesh engulfed him. But then there was nothing. No drums, no conches and no lingering feelings. He hadn't understood that that night he had experienced the night marchers and that he would experience them again so soon. He consulted with his family about his experiences and they believed that he was spared because of his ancestry. He was spared because of his name. It would be easy to say that Lepaka tells these stories because they're good for business, but it is important to note that the people of the islands do not see these as stories or fairy tales. The women who passed these tales ended each story with the phrase, the knowledge must continue. Not only were these stories educational, but they held a deep cultural significance in the community. And there are many others who have experienced the night marchers. The sound of the drums and the blowing of the conch is not limited to ghost tours or hearsay. The Moanalua Valley held the burial grounds of some of Oahu's most sacred chiefs and warriors. The State Department of Transportation had decided that it was a good idea to decimate some of the land of the valley in order to create a highway. A family named the Damon family had lived in the valley for generations and with the help of conservationists, cultural practitioners and residents, they managed to stop the construction of the highway on this sacred land. In 1972, Hawaiian historian Rubelite Johnson told of a strange tale with some surprising witnesses. A man named Rudolf Tai lived in the Moanalua Valley and was assailed one night by a terrifying series of events. As he lay in bed, he heard a strange noise. The far-off and unmistakable sound of a conch shell blowing from the uppermost part of the valley. He heard the beat of drums begin and the marching of what seemed like thousands of feet. Ty had heard the stories and did not dare to look out the window. Instead, he lay on his bed with his hands over his ears trying to block out the deafening sound of the marching forces. They were so close that he could hear the hiss of their torches. For two hours, the drums beat and the chanting of numerous voices filled the air, until eventually... It petered out into nothing but the sounds of the night. Ty's story on its own is interesting. 
but someone else was watching that night. A small ship sat in Pearl Harbour and on that ship there was a late watch. That man recorded what he saw in his log that night. From midnight until 2am he reported that he watched a string of torches moving from the top of the Moana Lua Valley towards the sea where they disappeared into the water. A group of friends were on a camping trip on the Big Island. It was the usual Boy Scout type trip with a day filled with hiking and setting up camp before dusk to settle in for the night. The group had hiked down the mountain and across a lava field where they had set up camp on the edge. As the group settled in for the night they noticed pinprick lights on the crest of the mountain. A steady stream of torches in the distance. They all watched quietly reassuring each other that it must be fishermen or some people out hunting on the mountain. But as they watched, they realised that something was very wrong. The group had taken a day to hike down the mountain, but the torches were moving at an unearthly speed. They were now almost at the edge of the lava field, and it had only been ten minutes. It had taken the group hours to trek that far earlier in the day, Almost in unison, the group began to scramble towards their tents. They knew what it was and what was coming. They knew there was nowhere to run to and the only hope was to hunker down and not look. They zipped themselves into their sleeping bags and almost as soon as they had done this, they began to hear the drums. The steady beat of the war drums as the sound of marching feet passed by. They felt an overwhelming sense of dread and a crushing pressure and then they awoke. They believed that they had passed out in shock or fear. A number of them woke up soaked in their own urine. The group reversed in the stories of old and understood what had happened to them and ultimately understood how deeply lucky they were to have survived the night. Hawaiian history and culture is full of fascinating lore. It is a culture of ancestral worship and the deification of ancestors. When people died in times gone by, the body was buried near the house. If a person of status died, sometimes their flesh would be boiled from their bones and the bones kept in the house. For others who worshipped a particular shark deity, their bones would be taken to the sea and fed to the shark. Dreams were considered a way for ancestors to communicate, and sometimes they would communicate in the physical realm too. UFOs and mysterious light anomalies are a regular sight. Since the last volcanic eruption on the Big Island, there have been sightings of an 11-foot-tall being, grey-skinned, with long, thin arms and legs. Deities interact with humans in meaningful ways, like the goddess of volcanoes and fire, Madame Pele. There are stories on the islands of an old woman being seen before the eruption of a volcano. There is one story of a family who stopped to help an old woman by the roadside. She asked them to bring her somewhere far away, a destination that would be a considerable journey for them and would be well out of their way. Recognising that this woman was in need, the family agreed to bring her to where she needed to go. When she got into the car, she told them that their kindness would be rewarded and to put red flags in their garden. And in what seemed like the blink of an eye, 
she had gone. The family, frightened of what had happened, returned home and did as she had recommended. That night the volcano erupted and as the lava snaked its way down the mountain, destroying everything in its path, the family fled. When they returned, they were shocked to see that the lava had been on a direct path to engulf their house, but had circumvented it. It had gone around the house. The house was completely unscathed, along with the fluttering red flags that were in the garden. The old woman is believed to be Pele, simultaneously warning of an eruption and testing the hearts of the people in her pathway to decide whether she should spare them hardship or not. There are stories of poltergeists and the apparitions of soldiers and prisoners. But there was one paranormal happening on the islands that caught my eye. The story of the Menahune. John and his friend were hunting deep in the forest on the big island when something on the ground between them caught their eye. Tracks. But not the type of tracks they were expecting. These tracks were small and humanoid, like the feet of a toddler that was running through the forest. These tracks were not a smudge or a best guess. They were very clearly small human feet. John and his friend examined them, confused. Could there be a child out here in the forest? It just wasn't possible. Not out this deep. It wasn't a place where families ventured out to. So what made the tracks? The islands are filled with stories like this. Near misses where people believe that they have just missed an encounter with them. And then there are the stories of the people who have claimed to have seen them. Hunters, seeing small human-like creatures covered in hair moving through the trees or sitting in the trees watching them. People have discovered caves that seem to be laid out for a person of small stature to live in. But what are the Menahune? They are a mythological race of dwarf people who are said to live deep in the forests and hidden away in valleys, far away from human settlements. The Menahune are said to be superb craftspeople and are still credited with the building of numerous sites on the islands of Hawaii, like temples, fish ponds, roads and agricultural structures. They only move at night time in order to build their wonders and have the power of mimicry. The islands are rich in paranormal, mythological and cryptozoological tales. Some believe that the volcanoes provide an energy that allows for the paranormal to survive and thrive on the islands. Some believe that it is the water that surrounds the islands that allows for the wealth of paranormal and supernatural encounters. Others believe that the Polynesian people carried with them their stories and tales that have been passed down through the years. Whatever versions you believe, and wherever you lie on the spectrum of scepticism, there are two things for certain. Don't ever go looking for the night marchers and always leave food out for the Menahune. So obviously, as always, I apologise if I butchered any of the pronunciation of any of those words. I did my best. I tried my best. And I apologise if I got it all completely wrong. 
And before I go any further, the information for the stories in this episode primarily came from Lepaka Kapanui, who is a storyteller, a native Hawaiian storyteller who runs ghost tours on the islands. He did an interview on Spaced Out Radio, which is available on YouTube. And the links to that are in the description and the links to tons of other stories Uh, So one of the stories was adapted from a Reddit thread. There was another story that was adapted from, bizarrely, the TV show Finding Bigfoot. Everything is linked in the description. I also recommend checking out Lepaka Kapanui's website itself. I think it's called Mysteries of Hawaii. And within that website, he has a blog where he outlines, I mean, tons and tons of stories from the islands that are just amazing. So firstly... Let's talk about the Menahune briefly. I loved the stories of the Menahune. They seemed to have these echoings of like fairy lore. There are lots of people who say if you have Menahune in your life, if they are around your property, if you see them, then make sure that you leave out offerings for them, something sweet like honey. Um, if you leave out potatoes for them, like sweet potatoes, they'll be really grateful or bananas, like anything like that. If you leave it out for them, they will generally leave you alone. But if you don't do that, they will wreak havoc on your life, which is very similar to fairy lore. And really interestingly, lots of academics and historians have studied the Menahune lore because there's a lot of argument as to whether or not the Menahune lore arrived with the Polynesian people or whether or not the Menahune lore arrived post-European contact and post-colonisation. But the fact remains that there are lots of structures on the islands that are said to have been built by the Menahune, who were really talented builders and would only come out at night and build these great structures. There were also people on the islands who claimed to have been descended from the Menahune. I think it was in a census in the 1800s a large number of people, I think in the hundreds, put down that they were descended from the Menahune. And what is really interesting is that along with Menahune lore and the idea that the Menahune existed, this race of little people who were really talented builders, really talented architects that kind of retreated into the forests when the Polynesian people arrived... There are similar beings in Maori mythology. There are similar beings in the Marianas. There are similar beings in the mythology of the Philippines. And then there is, of course, Homo floresiensis. Now, I'm pretty sure I've spoken about this before, uh, but it was kind of one of those stories where I thought, oh, I'm thinking about this off the top of my head. Did it really happen? Or is this something that I've like made up? Anyway, so Homo floresiensis was like a genus of primate that lived on the Indonesian islands like thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago and they were really small they were like I think one meter in height and they when they when they were discovered when the remains were found it kind of symbolized to scientists that actually the genus was really diverse and that there were some species that evolved to suit their surroundings and were potentially much smaller than we had previously anticipated. So that's obviously the shortened version and I'm definitely not a scientist, but there are some people who suggest that perhaps the Menahune really did exist on the islands and there are some people who suggest that maybe they still to, they still do deep in the islands. Now listen, I'm not saying that. 
But I do think it's a really interesting theory to look into, even if it's just to look into the scientific discovery and how kind of groundbreaking it was at the time. And as a nice little side note that Real Life Ghost Stories listeners I think will enjoy, there is a supernatural being called a Papueo, which I'm probably saying wrong, who have the ability to control owls. And what they do is they send the owls to control the Menahune when the Menahune get out of hand. So listen, as we all know, it is definitely always owls. And at the beginning of this episode, we talked about the Night Marchers and the Night Marchers stories are so interesting. There are so many of them, people hearing the sounds, people seeing the torches in the distance, people being filled with a sense of dread and fear when they hear that sound. Like, it's pretty amazing. Apparently, the security footage from these business establishments that were wrecked in the in in the pathways of the night marchers apparently that security footage exists now i couldn't find it so i wasn't able to i can't verify whether it exists and i can't tell you what it looks like but apparently it's out there if anyone wants to do some digging there is also the radio rental episode which i think is episode 19 which has a an alleged night marcher story complete with pictures and a video on their instagram if you want to look into that too it's pretty interesting The stories about the origins of the Night Marchers are so steeped in cultural significance. These people that the Night Marchers were marching with were sacred. They were so important to the people, to the islands, to the stories that they told, to their whole ideas about culture and spirituality. Like it was just a massive part of life. And I think that if there ever was going to be residual energy... And I almost hate using that phrase because of its modern connotations. But if there's ever going to be residual energy, it feels like it would be in a situation like the Night Marchers. Imagine the fear that people would feel on the nights that the Night Marchers were moving. Because you would know that if you were in the wrong place at the wrong time, if you happened to catch a glimpse of that sacred chieftain, that person, then you were going to die. So not only were these marches really significant to the people, they also brought with them, they must have brought with them some serious fear from the residents of the islands, from the people who were waiting for these night marches to be over so that they would be safe. And it seemed like the most important purpose of the lives of the night marchers, of the lives of these warriors was to protect these sacred beings in society. So it makes sense that they would continue doing this after their death. That's what they were meant to do. That's what they were put on this earth to do. And that is what they will continue to do. And you know, I like to consider myself a pretty brave person in that I am pretty sceptical. I would question a lot of things, but I would not go looking for the night marchers. That is for sure. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Thank you for being patient with me while I took a break. It was much needed and much enjoyed. Unfortunately, I have to put the YouTube series on hold for a while for a myriad of reasons that I won't go into now, but it will happen at some point. I'm just not entirely sure when as yet. Thank you so much again for being patient. Thank you so much for listening. All of the links to all of the information from this episode are in the episode notes. 
If you would like to learn anything about Real Life Ghost Stories podcast, you can do so by checking out the website reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. You can also sign up to the Patreon if you are desperate for some extra content. There is over 130 episodes extra on there for $5 a month. And for $2 a month, you get access to ad-free episodes and the back catalogue of 50p Movie Club, which is another movie review podcast. And if you wish to sign up to Patreon, you can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash real life ghost stories or checking out the link that is in the notes for this episode. And on that note, I shall see you next time. <laughs>